I want to start today um, with a couple of quotes, and I want to tell you up front that the two quotes I'm going to use contradict each other. And so I want to read you the first quote, and then I'm going to read you the second quote, which contradicts the first quote, and then I'm going to contradict both of them. Um, so that just feels like a great way to get, get started. So uh, the first quote is, both of these are by 20th century theologians. How many of you know somebody by the name of A.W. Tozer? Is that name familiar? So here's what Tozer says. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Then another 20th century theologian came along named C.S. Lewis. You may have heard of C.S. Lewis. That's sort of like how you know you grew up evangelical, right? Is that you've heard of C.S. Lewis. Here's what he says. I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think about God. So Lewis has read Tozer, right? And now he says, I read this in a periodical the other day, the fundamental thing is how we think about God. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of God is of no importance except insofar as it is related to how God thinks of us. Right? So Tozer's like, how you think about God is the most important thing. And Lewis is like, uh, no. No, what God thinks about us is the most important thing. Right? And I, I think they're both slightly off. Because I think the most important thing is probably how we think about how God thinks about us. Are you, you, does that make sense? Like, it, it really doesn't matter what God thinks about you. If you think God thinks a thing about you, you're going to live as if it were true, because we shape our gods and our gods shape us, right? That's how it works. And so if you believe God is angry with you, if you believe God uh, hates you, if you believe God's wrath is burning against you, you're going to live a certain kind of life based out of that. So how God thinks about, how we think about how God thinks about us is super, super important. And that's what I want to explore today as we dive into talking about compassion. How God thinks about us isn't quite as important as how we think about how God thinks about us. Uh, so I want to take some, a text from Luke chapter 6 today. This is part of what's known as the Sermon on the Plain. And just to be clear, it's like a P-L-A-I-N, not a P-L-A-N-E. Like I don't think Jesus was, you know, on an airplane giving the sermon. This is sort of Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. In Luke, it happens on a mountain. I mean, Matthew, it happens on a mountain. In Luke, it happens on a level place where Jesus gives a similar teaching, but it's much shorter. Luke's version is about a fourth as long as Matthew's. Matthew's contains a lot more uh, information. But to give you context for what, what I want to read, Jesus is doing some teaching on loving your enemies. And he's talking about how to resist oppression without uh, using violence, how to nonviolently resist. And he's talking about how to make sure that in your resistance to oppression, you don't let it shape you into an oppressive person, right? He's, he's talking about a way to respond. And he actually has this great line, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. How many of you were ever told that as a child? We need to tell it to adults more, perhaps, right? Um, but treat people how you want them to treat you, which, which is a thread that runs through every world religion, basically, Every major religious tradition has either a positive, which is treat others how you want to be treated, or a negative, don't treat people how you don't want to be treated. Like in the faith, in the religion, all over the world, people are uh, somehow intuiting that this is the best way to live, is to treat people how you want to be treated. And so on the heels of that, in Luke chapter 6, here's what Jesus says. He, says, he talks about loving your enemies. If you love those who love you, why should you be commended? Even sinners love those who love them. 
If you do good to those who do good to you, why should you be commended? Even sinners do that. If you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, why should you be commended? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be paid back in full. Instead, love your enemies, do good, and lend expecting nothing in return. If you do, you will have a great reward. Now, this is where we really get excited, right? We're going to have a great reward. What's it going to be? Like, if you don't punch that person that you want to punch, what's the reward? Right? What is it? And here's what Jesus says. You will be acting the way children of the Most High act. So I think we hear the word reward and we're like, ka-ching. And what Jesus is saying, no, you're being formed into a certain kind of human being. You're acting the way God's kids act in the world. And then he goes on to add this. That you'll be acting as children of the Most High, for he is kind to ungrateful and wicked people. Right? Jesus says, when you treat people that way, when you respond not with hate, when you respond not with venom, but when you seek a, a better way, you're acting like children of the Most High because this is how God acts. God is good to everyone. God doesn't discriminate, right? So th- that's powerful. And then is the, the next line, though. This is, I don't know if I have a favorite Bible verse, but this would be on the list if I did. Luke 6, 36, Jesus follows this up with, be compassionate just as your father is compassionate. Now, I want to say a word about that word father because I know for lots of people, when we talk about God and use that word, it gives them uh, you know, a little bit of a heebie-jeebie effect, right? Um, and it's steeped in patriarchy. And it's a pro- Here's the thing. In Jesus' world, this was the language. If that language is unhelpful for you, you can say mother, you can say parent, you can say creator, like whatever language feels good to you, uh, that's fine. I'm pretty sure God's not going to be offended, right? The reality is, Jesus is saying, if you want to know what God is like, if you want to know how God acts toward everyone, if you want to know how God thinks about and feels about everyone and everything, you can sum it up in this one word, compassion. How does God think and feel and respond and act toward everyone and everything? Compassion. Now, Jesus had other options. He didn't have to say, be compassionate as God is compassionate. He could have said other things. He could have said, be holy as God is holy. That's actually in the Bible, right? It's in there. Be holy as God is holy. But Jesus didn't say that. I mean, the the, the whole be holy, the whole obsession with holiness, uh, it can actually be counterproductive in a way in that it creates new boundaries and new insiders and new outsiders. And you're always in, how many of you ever got in competition um, with other people to see who was the holiest? (laughs) Anybody? Did you ever try to out-holy each other? Like if you went to church camp and you were trying, yeah, right? That focus on holiness can create a whole other set of issues. He didn't even say, be right as God is right. I mean, it's hard to believe, but the point of the Christian tradition has never been being right. It's actually never commanded. Jesus never says, be right as God is right. He could have. It was an option. Some of us think that's what he said. But he actually said, be compassionate as God is compassionate. Let your posture toward the world, toward your friends, toward those you love, toward those who are good to you and kind to you, and toward your enemies, to those who aren't good to you, to those who hate you, those who gossip about you, those who are unkind to you. Be compassionate. Now we can talk about how that compassion works and gets fleshed out, but the reality is we're being called to something very, very difficult. I have no problem being compassionate to people who are good to me. Because I'm afraid if something's wrong with them, they're not going to keep being good to me, so i got to be compassionate, right? Like, it's often self-interested, but it's easier. 
It's the other group of people, the people who I don't like very much. It's hard to muster compassion. And I think we have to have a conversation about what words mean because I think in our culture there's a breakdown uh, with empathy, sympathy, and compassion. You ever have that problem like, what, do I f- what is this? Is this empathy, is it sympathy, or compassion? So here's what empathy is. Empathy is when you feel somebody else's feelings. Like something happens to them and you can say, I know what it's like. I know what it's like because I felt it. I know what it's like because I've walked through it. I know what it's like because I have been there. There's something often tragic about being able to empathize because that means you've been through pain. Right? You know what it's like. Sympathy, on the other hand, is when you understand but you don't feel it. You can say, I, I can totally see why that would be painful. I could totally see why that would be a wound. I could totally see why, why that would hurt. That's sympathy. Compassion is when you either feel or understand and then you work to alleviate the suffering. Right, so compassion is essentially what happens when empathy and sympathy grow arms and legs and start doing stuff in the world. It's when it's not just an idea or a feeling, it's when there's action that is connected to it. Listen to what Desmond Tutu said. Compassion is not just a feeling, with, not just feeling with someone, but seeking to change the situation. Frequently, people think compassion and love are sentimental. No, they are very demanding. If you're, going to be a, if you're going to be compassionate, be prepared for action. How many of you have ever seen one of those commercials on TV, um, like for the Humane Society, right? And they're playing that Sarah, Sarah McLaughlin music in the background, and, and you're, you're, you're looking at it, and you're, you're getting all emotional, and you're thinking, I'm going to go adopt every animal. And then five minutes later, what happens? Like, what was I thinking? I am not going to go. I'm going to forget about this in five minutes, right? We sort of have this... Um, we get it. We understand that there's something you look at and it moves you, but it doesn't move you to action. And compassion is what happens when those sympathy, empathy, when those experiences become so powerful that you can no longer sit back, but you have to engage and you have to do something. There's a reason the the words we attach to compassion uh, are action words. Think about this. How many of you ever said, I was moved by that? What does that mean? It moved something in me. It caused me uh, to, do, to think, to do something. I had to act. By the way, and this is just for fun, if you're ever trapped in an elevator and you just, just want to do some random Bible trivia with people, because that's what I would do <laughs> if I were trapped in an elevator. I won't judge if that's not your thing. Um, one of the words for compassion in the Bible in, in Greek is the word splanknon, right? And it literally means bowels. So it is biblically accurate to say to someone, that story was so powerful, it moved my bowels. <laughs> like it's, it's in the Bible and it's completely fair game. Uh, we would translate that as heart today, right? But in the ancient world, the, the, the sense was it's in your gut. That's where choices come from. That's where you're moved to action. When you feel something in your gut, you have to do something about it. And we've changed that language, but it's still a powerful metaphor, right? This idea of something moving me, something calling me into action, something calling me out of the sidelines where I'm just watching, but to actually do something. There, there's some stories I want to look at briefly, uh, the life of Jesus, where this idea of being moved with compassion shows up. Notice this from Matthew 20. As Jesus and his disciples were going out of Jericho, a large crowd followed him. When two blind men sitting along the road heard that Jesus was passing by, they shouted, Show us mercy, Lord, son of David. Now the crowd scolded them and told them to be quiet. So get this scene. You have two people with a need. 
They're shouting to get Jesus' attention, and his handlers are essentially saying, the teacher's way too busy to deal with this. Don't, don't, don't make a scene. Don't embarrass yourselves. Don't, don't embarrass him. He's got, he's got way too many important things going on. Jesus stopped in his tracks, called to them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, we want to see. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes and immediately they would be able to see and they followed him. Do you notice that? What do you want me to do for you? So with Jesus, we had a conversation, I think it may have been at Reconstruct the other night, but um, like there isn't this moment where Jesus is like, oh, I'm gonna heal you and you're gonna like it one way or the other. He asks them, what would you like me to do? What do you want? And they ask for healing and what does Jesus do? He feels compassion and he reaches out his hands and he touches, right? He doesn't just go, gosh, it's rough. He reaches out and he touches them. Notice this in Mark chapter one. There's a man with a skin disease. Uh, we, would call, we would say leprosy. He approached Jesus and fell to his knees and begged, if you want, you can make me clean. Incensed, Jesus reached out his hand, touched him and said, I do want, be clean. Instantly, the skin, the man, the skin disease left and he was clean. Now, what happens here? Jesus meets someone, an untouchable, has an experience, the man asks for help, and what does Jesus do? He's moved, and he's moved. He reaches out, and he touches. Another amazing story from Mark chapter um, eight is the story of feeding the 4,000, where a crowd has been following Jesus for days, and he says to the disciples, I really, really feel terrible for these people. They have been following me for days, and they have nothing to eat. I mean, these are likely people from the peasant class. They weren't packing a lunch. They were just going because something was happening. There was a movement to be a part of. And Jesus actually says to his disciples, I'm moved by their situation. Let's feed them. And, of course, the disciples are like, what? (laughs) And Jesus' action, his move, his movement causes something new and amazing to be brought into the world. There's something about being moved. Jesus embodied a compassion that was active. It did stuff in the world. And that compassion was so contagious that when you read the stories of the early Christians, what were they doing? They were gathering around a table to make sure everybody had enough food to eat, to make sure everybody had their needs met, to make sure no one was left out, right? I mean, it's this thing that starts with Jesus and spreads throughout his followers. And it's a really beautiful thing. Because the reality is when you see compassion in the world, it makes you want to join it. So we were at um, Rooster, there's a place in Bowling Green called Roosters. Imagine what a place like that might look like. You got it. We were, um, we had our whole family there one day and I forget why we were in there. We, we were sitting in one of these big booths and we, we were all eating and there was another family in the restaurant uh, with a lot of kids. And the dad came over and was talking to us and they were also a foster adoptive home. And he, he and my wife, I was, I don't know where I was, but I walked back and uh, they were talking and I was like, who's this guy? And she's like, hey, he's a foster. So we had this nice little interaction and then they went and sat back down at their table and we sat at ours. And when we went to pay our bill at the end of the, the deal, he had paid for it. They'd bought our lunch and it's, you know, 17 people or whatever it is we have. It's not cheap <laughs> to feed that many people. And, and my first statement to Carla was, if I'd known that, I'd have gotten more food. But the, the other, the next statement was, um, wow, that, that's incredible. It makes me want to do that for somebody else, right? To, there's something about being surprised with an act of kindness like that 
that completely can transform your day. It doesn't matter how crazy it's been or how difficult. Somebody does something like that and it transforms your experience. And it, it leaves you, I mean, have you ever been in a drive-thru and somebody in front of you bought your coffee or whatever? I mean, what do you do? Do you drive up and go, ha ha, suckers, and drive off? I mean, typically you'll, you pay it forward, right? Because it moves you to do something. Um, I, I know most of you probably know this, but um, uh, Rachel Held Evans passed away yesterday. And uh, she did. And um, it has, for so many, it's been amazing to watch the outpouring of love for her over these last several weeks as she's been ill. And it's been even perhaps more amazing to hear all the stories people are sharing about ways she impacted and touched their lives. And she's a friend of Grace Points as well. And a few weeks ago when she went to the hospital, some friends of hers set up a GoFundMe for her. And their goal was $40,000. And they went by that like in the first day. So they raised the goal to $70,000. And I looked at it this morning on the way here. And in 12 days, they've raised $176,000 that will go to her family. Now, you think about that. We, there's a lot of problems with the world, and there's a lot of things in our society we could need to work on and need to challenge and need to change, but there's something powerful about somebody saying, here's a need, and if we all come together, we can do something about it. We can help this family. We can alleviate some difficulty. We can do something, right? And it calls people into action. People not only give to it, but then they share about it and invite other people to give to it. What is that? That's not sympathy, and that's not just empathy. That is actual, concrete, compassionate action in the world. Because compassion is never content to stay on the sidelines. Compassion always wants to be in the action. A couple years ago in North London, England, I ran across this story online, and I just still can't get it out of my head. It's um, there were, on a bridge in North London, England, there was a man who was trying to jump. He was going to take his own life. And some people walking on the bridge saw him and decided that they had to do something to stop him from doing this. And so at first they went over and they just hugged him. Wouldn't let go of him. Uh, and then more people came and hugged him. And then they were strapping him with things so he couldn't fall off the bridge. I want to show you a picture. Those are human beings holding on to an, and it's not like they held him for 15 minutes while, no, it took two hours to get help there. And those people stood there embracing this man who's in obvious pain for two whole hours until rescue could come. They had to use a boom on a fire truck to get him down and take him to the hospital for treatment. When you think about what compassion looks like, it's that. I mean, those people had options, right? Maybe they had dinner plans. Maybe, maybe they were going to meet a friend. Maybe they'd had a rough day. Like what a, any number of things had gone on and yet they decided that there's a thing happening here. There's a human being in pain here and we can, it, it, all it requires is for me to hug him for two hours and, and we can save his life. That's what compassion looks like. And sadly, the, the thing that has had the most disconnect in religious circles is we're great to talk about things and even to feel things, but it's when it requires us to act in ways that are inconvenient or uncomfortable that we often choose to say, hey, that's, that's more than I had anticipated, right? Because living a life of compassion isn't easy. It just isn't. And it doesn't always come natural. Can we just admit that? Sometimes you ever hear something and think, I know that should make me feel a certain way, but it just didn't. <laughs> Anybody else have that happen to you? 
you're like, I, I know I should feel away. I think I should feel, but I don't. Right? Compassion isn't easy. In, in some ways, it's teaching our hearts and our minds to really listen at a deeper level, uh, to see at a deeper level. And so when I think about compassion, I think about three words. See. You have to see, right? Compassion requires seeing. It requires seeing other people. It requires seeing below the surface. It requires an openness to actually know what's going on around you. I'm, I'm one of the most oblivious people in the world. Honestly, am, am I not? We've had this running joke. She's going to testify right now. I, we, they had this, people have this running joke that um, I had two sets of keys because I kept losing one. And so I had a spare set. But then there was this one time where I lost the spare set and the original set. And so I had no, like I'm oblivious. I can lose things. I can misplace things. I don't know half the time what's going on. And it's about learning to train yourself to really be present and to really see. If we're continually somewhere else, we're never going to be in the moment. And if we're not in the moment, we can't see what's around us. Um, and so I would say it begins with seeing. And then it begins with feeling, allowing yourself to feel. And if, if it's not an empathy thing, like you haven't been through it, you don't know, perhaps it's one of those things where you're like, try to imagine yourself. What would my life be like if... I were in that situation. What would I want from people? That goes, treat other people how you want to be treated? How would I want to be treated if this were me? And then act. See, feel, and act. Do a thing. Step in somehow in an act of compassion and generosity and, and be something that somebody needs you to be at some point in their life, right? I mean, that's what compassion is asking us to do. But here's the thing I've learned. It is really hard to, to give something that you don't have. And I think we struggle with compassion for a couple reasons. One is because we live in a hectic, busy world, and, and I'm as guilty as anybody. We're looking down at our phone. You know what I mean? Like, we're, just, we're distracted. The other reason is I think we have trouble with compassion because we aren't really willing to receive it. I mean, if you meet, meet somebody who really just doesn't have compassion for anybody else, I, I bet if you pulled apart their story and looked in, what you would discover is it's not, they're not treating people this way in themselves differently. They feel that way about themselves too. They have no compassion for anyone else because they have no compassion for themselves. And it becomes really hard to extend something that you don't feel like you even deserve or that you're not worthy of, right? And, and we have that worthiness narrative that often plays in our heads. I'm just unworthy, right? Because we've bought into a narrative that says, hey, here's how God really feels about you. God is disappointed. God is angry. God is wrathful. God thinks you're a terrible, depraved being. I mean, even though you know, I hope you know that that's not true. I hope you know that that's not true. I know it's not true. But there are still moments in my life where that has been so ingrained in my thinking that it still pops up. Anybody else have that problem? And you know that you just know it's not true. And yet there it is playing on that tape in your brain telling you you're not enough. You're not worthy enough. You're not good enough. God is mad at you. And so before we can extend compassion to anyone else, we have to begin to understand that we are worthy of compassion, that we are worthy of other people's compassion and of our own. Now, I'm not talking about feeling sorry for yourself. And no, I'm talking about actually looking at yourself and realizing you are a human being in process. And you are who you are for lots of different reasons. And giving yourself some grace. You're going to mess up. I hope you know this by now. You're going to mess up. Yeah, good to know, just in case it happens someday. And the reality is, that's okay. There's compassion, and there's love, and there's grace for all of those things. I, I, I'm on airplanes semi-regularly, and 
what usually happens when the flight attendant is going through the whole, here's the, grab the cushion so you don't, you know, that whole thing, and they're telling you, and I always wonder when I'm flying across land why we're talking about the floating seat cushion, like if they know something I don't. Um, as they're going through all that, here's this you know, buckle, here's the oxygen mask. What I typically do, I'll, I'll put in earphones and I'll just kind of start watching something or listening to something. I just ignore it because I, I just feel like I can handle it. You know, I've heard it enough that I, and I'm sure we're all going to panic anyway. You know, uh, when you sit at the emergency door, because I like the leg room and they're like, now will you lead the charge to safety? Yeah, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> right? I mean, uh, but I, yeah, I feel like I could, you know, at least know what to do even if I didn't do it. Um, the first time I really paid attention to that was the first time I got on an airplane with our oldest. And I think um, we were flying um, to a work trip in the Dominican Republic, and we're sitting beside each other, he's just a kid, and we're on this very tiny airplane, I mean very tiny airplane, but they still had safety features, and so the flight attendant is going through them, and then she I actually paid attention and she talked about the oxygen mask, and she said if the cabin destabilizes, the oxygen masks will fall from the, okay, and then what? And she says, well, you're going to take it and you're going to pull it down. You're going to breathe in it. And then they give you this great line. Make sure you put your own mask on before you help secure the mask of anyone else. And immediately I was like, nope. I'm going to put the mask on my kiddo first. Are you crazy? I'm not going to be breathing oxygen while he's passing out. I'm not going to do it. And then you think about it. It makes total sense. Right? How can I put his mask on if I'm passed out? So that's not a selfish act. It's an act to make sure that I, you can help more people, right? If you're breathing, you can help more people. Um, and I, I think this is how compassion works. If you're breathing, you can help more people. If you're receiving it, if you're opening yourself to it, if you're, being, if you're willing to say, it's okay that they're extending mercy, grace, and compassion to me because I am a beloved human being and I'm worthy of it. That's a game changer. Can you imagine going into the world and, and not feeling like that there's only so much compassion to go around? I, mean, I think that's why certain, certain doctrines uh, flourish is because people think there's only so much to go around and so of course all those people have to go to hell because I need my little bit of heaven, right? It's, it's from a scarcity mentality and the good news is that there is no shortage of compassion. That great line from Lamentations, because God's mercies are new every morning. And our mercies with ourselves and each other have to be new every morning. Now, there are people you, that need compassion and it's not your job. And what I mean is, there are people who've been destructive in your life and to be near them is to put yourself in harm's way and put yourself in danger. Of course, that's somebody else's. Somebody else needs to step into that job, right? Um, you don't do things that make you unsafe. But the reality is, I bet there's something or someone around you who's hurting, who's in need, and just your attention, just you reaching out and saying, are you okay, could actually begin a transformation in their life. I know it, I've seen it happen with people. Just you seeing them, feeling for them, and extending your hand is a transformative experience. And it's also a contagious one. When you see people doing that, don't you want to get on on it? Don't, I mean, don't you? Because you feel like they're, they're all doing this and it's amazing. I want to do it too. And if you have to be peer pressured into compassion, I think that's okay. Right? So as we, uh, we're going to have a, the band come up in just a moment and they're going to um, 
play a song for us. But as we think about where we're going as we leave this place, I want to give us those three words to take with us. See, feel, feel. Eastern Kentucky right there, man, goodness. Feel. Uh, See, feel, and act. What do I need to see? How can I feel? And how can I act? Are you with me? All right, let's pray. We are grateful for this morning to be in this space with our friends, our family. We're grateful for all the ways that we have no doubt been recipients of compassion in our lives. And so it's our prayer today that if we have a resistance to that, if there is a narrative we're believing that's causing us to resist that compassion that we need to receive so that we can then share. It's our prayer that you help us break those walls down, that we have open hearts to receive and open hearts to give. We are grateful for this Jesus who models what it looks like to be moved at such a deep level by compassion. I'm grateful that every human being in this room and in this world is a beloved creation worthy of compassion. Give us eyes to see, give us hearts to feel, and give us courage to act. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Everybody said.